What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey everyone, welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Well, hey, everybody, it's Eric alongside Rod again, and we're going to continue our March to the Big Ten and our Big Ten previews. And today is number five, Michigan. And uh, I want to stop the recording right now. Go to your podcast player using, leave a five-star written review, come back to the recording, and we're going to talk about everyone's least favorite team in the Big Ten, the Michigan Wolverines. Last season, they were 19-15 overall. They were 11-9 in the Big Ten. They lost in the Sweet 16 to Villanova. They were ranked number 27 in Ken Palm, number 21st in offense, and number 74th in defense. They were number 62 in two-point percentage and number 80 in offensive rebounding and 84th in free throw percentage. Those were the strengths of the team. The weakness was shooting the three. They were number 164, and I think that was a bit of a surprise, not something they expected last year. And on defense, they were not very good either. They're a good defensive rebounding team at number 38, but they were number 203 in two-point percentage, which made them very vulnerable. They entered the last season coming off the Big Ten title, which was somewhat controversial, especially if I talked to my friends who are Illini's, uh, because they had a lot of games that were skipped with COVID, a lot of expectations, and they very much underperformed. They started off at 7-6 and six, and then had a COVID break, which I had completely forgotten. I tell you, this time warp can, <laughs> with COVID has really thrown me off as far as my uh, when things happen. Uh, the COVID outbreak happened. Some games they missed. They rescheduled them. And uh, they ended up beating Michigan State, Purdue, Iowa at home, Ohio State at the road, got in the tournament, won a couple of games, and then, like we, I said before, they bowed out in the Sweet 16. Also, uh, Juwan Howard had a little bit of a kerfluffle right. <laughs> last season and uh, got in trouble where he, uh, you know, attacked a coach. It was kind of crazy. So it was, a, it was a weird year in a strange year with COVID. Yeah, it was a... <laughs> Yeah, it was a weird year. You know, they they came in and people have forgotten this, I think. But Michigan was pretty much the consensus preseason favorite in the Big Ten. I didn't buy into that. Now, the team that I had as my favorite was Purdue. They didn't win it either. But they were, to me, um, clearly not going to be the team they were the year prior. And And the reason for that was fairly obvious. All you had to do was look at what they lost. They lost their point guard um, who had been, you know, not a statistical powerhouse for them, but really a key gave them sound play at a position of great need and where there was a question mark, right? They had Franz Wagner mature into a very good player as a sophomore after kind of an up and down freshman season. They had Isaiah livers be a very, very good two-way player for them. Um, 
Chandi Brown, who was a transfer, gave them great depth on the perimeter. They lost all of these guys who really mattered for them and helped make them, particularly on the defensive end, helped make them a very, very good defensive team. And I just looked at it and I thought, well, there's no way they're not taking a hit from this because the guys they've brought in, you know, uh, there was a lot of hype around um, a couple of their freshman recruits who were top 10 guys uh, in the rankings and, you know, expectations that they were going to hit the ground running and be great. I was skeptical about that. I was skeptical, skeptical about, um, the kid they were bringing in to run the point, Devontae Jones, a transfer from Coastal Carolina. And and by and large, I think that skepticism was warranted. Now, you mentioned the COVID break. This is important to remember about their season. They were seven and six with Michigan State set to go into Chrysler and all the momentum in the world stacked against Michigan. Uh, it was very controversial. They handled it extremely poorly to refresh people's memories. Michigan State actually traveled to Ann Arbor, were in their hotel the night before the game, and then were told, oh, the game's off. And there was a lot of obfuscation about what was going on. But uh, without getting into the weeds too much, there are rules as to how many players must be eligible to play, or there were last year before a game can go on. And um, the word was, this was never confirmed to my knowledge, but the word was Hunter Dickinson was one of the positives, but that they kind of played around with it to make sure they didn't have enough guys who were eligible to play. There were question marks about the validity of that. We'll never get a clear answer on it, but it all added up. I mean, this is a school who's got, they got into trouble the year before with their hockey program, playing fast and loose. As you mentioned, they won a Big Ten title in part because they didn't end up having to play a couple of games that they might have lost and would have cost them the Big Ten title the year before. So there's a pattern here, like it or not, that's how it is. That's a fact. There's a, there's a, an evidenced pattern of behavior. And so pardon me if I'm skeptical when, when you're not being clear, you're not being transparent in the first place about what's going on. In any event, they got to postpone the Michigan State and Purdue games. Now, my feeling at the time, and I voiced it on this podcast pretty insistently, is that Michigan State should simply refuse to reschedule the game. Because if you remember, the, the only way this was going to work is to jam it in. And that's exactly what happened. It got jammed into the middle of an already busy portion of the schedule at the end of the year. And I, I did not see how that benefited Michigan State, win, lose, or draw. And I could only see upside for Michigan because at the time this all happened, Michigan was in trouble. You know, seven and six overall, they're up to a bad start in the league. Anyway, so they, they got to they got to postpone games against Michigan State and Purdue. By the time they had to play those games, they had found some momentum. And and again, Michigan for Michigan State, they had these this game jammed into the middle of a busy portion of the schedule. I just felt, you know, my feeling was Michigan had didn't deserve the opportunity. And and Michigan State should have simply said, sorry guys, we're not playing. 
This isn't, this puts our team at an increased risk of injury. We're, we're, we care too much about the health and safety of our, our players, our student athletes. Sorry, we're not playing. Would have been totally legitimate in my mind, but that's not Tom Izzo's MO. And, and I say this as someone who had to go to that game in Chrysler and witness it firsthand, a very <laughs> dire night. So, yeah, it still lingers with me. Um, but put all that garbage aside, to their credit, uh, they found enough momentum. They figured out some things well enough that they were able to recover and get to the tournament. And then, again, to their credit, once they got to the tournament, they managed to pull off a couple upset wins. They got down early against Colorado State and fought back and won it. They beat Tennessee in a very competitive game in the round of 32. And then the Sweet 16, they, they just, you know, Villanova's just simply a better team. But all in all, a Sweet 16 run for that team, pretty successful ending to a year which was just not very good. They struggled in some pretty basic areas. They were not a very good three-point shooting team. Uh, and they were a terrible defensive team where it matters most against twos. And that was in part because their perimeter defenders were not nearly as good as they've been the year before. And in part, because teams were able to often exploit Hunter Dickinson, who is an incredible offensive player, but defensively, he's a problem for Michigan, a big problem because he can't move. And it's why he's still in college basketball instead of in the NBA. And why I don't know that he'll ever play in the NBA because he can't move. So um, all in all, I give him credit for figuring out enough to get back to the tournament, but, um, it was a year where in total, you have to say that they underachieved certainly from expectations. Although again, I felt the expectations from jump were ridiculous. I, I didn't think they were legitimate and sure enough, the way it panned out, they weren't. Yeah, certainly you expect that there won't be any ability for COVID shenanigans this year uh, with the, it should be a fairly straightforward season and uh, there won't be any dodging or rescheduling things. You're not going to get any competitive advantages, I don't think, from anything like this, like this again. It's two years running that we've had this. And then, and before we move into um, particulars on the roster, we should also bring up, because I didn't have it in my notes, but I'm glad you brought it up. I, you had forgotten about the COVID thing. I had let the guard incident slip. <laughs> forgot about the So <laughs> they've got that looming over them, you know, and Juwan Howard has had a problem. You know, let's be frank about it. He had a problem the year prior. If you remember in the Big Ten tournament, he came very close to a similar incident with Mark Turgeon, then of Maryland, where they had to be separated by guys that were screaming at each other on the sidelines. So then last year, they actually get into it where he gets suspended and um, for striking someone, striking a player, I guess. And, uh, and he ends up being suspended as a result. I, I, that was a tough one because to me, the way I looked at it, you know, all rivalry biases aside, this was not, I mean, if you want to try to paint it as a first incident, okay, but it really wasn't, he'd had the thing with Turgeon the year before. So 
we clearly had evidence. This is a guy who has problems controlling himself. And for all the Michigan fans over the years who have had problems with Tom Izzo's sideline demeanor, best as I can recall, he's never struck anybody or even tried to, you know, um, that's a, that's a problem. That is a problem. And it'll be interesting to see how it goes this year for Jawan, because, you know, student groups, um, you know, fan groups, I mean, tend to have long memories for this stuff. And I suspect that Juwan Howard on the road is going to have a very, very hard time of it. Now, how he reacts to that, who knows? Maybe, maybe this was enough of a scared straight kind of incident that we don't see a repeat, but man, to date, I have not seen evidence that this guy has a great sense of self-control and what might happen next. You don't know. I agree. And I kind of look at it. I spend a lot of time in the OR. I spend time with surgeons and we have people who have anger issues, right? And we, in all walks of life, but there's certain arenas that you are allowed to express yourself that you're not allowed to express yourself in normal places. And I think, you know, the athletic field or the basketball court is one of those places. You can be sort of more boisterous than you can in most settings. The OR is another place and in the hospital and the tolerance for that sort of behavior is a lot different now than it was 25 years ago. And I think right. you run the risk as someone who has problems with your control, your anger, that you're going to be fired. And I think it, it's I, it, my understanding. He didn't go to anger management courses. He didn't, which is a typical sort of corporate thing you do for people right. who have difficulty with that. And, and I would imagine that he is at risk for this happening again. I, I'm not sure what set him off either time. I can't imagine it was something it was a lot. I mean, it was, but he clearly has a problem and it's one that you've, it'd be, I'd be shocked if it doesn't manifest itself. Maybe not this year, but it will over the next couple of years for sure, because he's already had a couple instances. And so clearly he's got a short fuse for something. That's a really good point because you could say, well, look, there were consequences, but were the consequences such that, that we can, we can likely expect that it will result in a change. I don't know about that, you know, cause at the end of the day, he sat out, whatever it was, it was a game or two. Right. And then he's yeah, back. Was, yeah. Right. Yeah. And he's back. And there's no, you know, beyond that, as you said, I, I don't recall that there was any discussion about mandated anger management training or, you know, anything along those lines that, as you say, is kind of standard operating procedure for how you deal with these things in the professional world, if for no other reason than the optics of it. Right. Um, Absolutely. And yeah. and that didn't happen here. So you have to wonder where how loudly is the time bomb continuing to tick and and what might be next? You know, I who knows? I mean, but I, I know this much. He's going to get it in every Big Ten arena he steps into. He's going to have a crowd that is on him. Now, will that be enough to create an atmosphere to make it more likely than not that this repeats or worse happens? I don't know about that. I tend to think it won't so much be that. It will rather just be the way it happened the first two times, where it was the heat of the moment in a competitive situation and something sets him off 
and uh, he can't control himself. But we'll see. It's an interesting sideline to the season, though, watching that. I think it will be. And I think the one thing that it was I was struck with by most with the whole situation is just the lack of contrition. Now, maybe there was behind the scenes that there was some. Yep, know, absolutely. Right, but there, there was not a publicly, I, you know, apology like I got, you know, out of hand or something. But it never seemed, it never seemed genuine. It never there was never any sort of expression of regret, really. It was it, outside of like being caught, sort of. Is quite like the only, and I think that's right. a, that's a sign that that you that's what you take care of with an anger management course. You get self reflection, understand what it is that you have, what problems you have. I mean, that that's what's supposed yep. to sort of correct itself. And I don't know that we saw any correction. And I guess we'll know if it happens again. But my hunch is it's probably not going to be. And look, fixed. I, to to be fair to this guy, you know, he has a reputation from what I gather within NBA circles is a great guy. People who played with him, uh, who he coached when he was on the coaching staff, of Miami seemed to love him. Um, so I give him his due with that respect. However, I will note that, uh, he had behavioral issues at times when he was a player at Michigan, many Michigan state fans of a certain vintage will remember the act that he and Jalen Rose engaged in at Breslin. Um, you know, so uh, is it indicative of, of a deep seated problem that has not been dealt with when you've got intervening years of people largely being very positive about the kind of guy he is? I don't know, but I, I know what I saw, what I saw last winter and that, that day, in uh in madison was uh hard to just uh brush off and it suggests as we're talking about precisely because there haven't been steps or at least any publicly noted steps taken to address it that you do legitimately have to wonder okay when's the next round of this what happens next and does that end his career yeah, because because he struck another. I think I believe he struck a coach. Uh, on the, well, he got it. Yeah, there was Crab Crabenhoff, the assistant from Wisconsin. But yeah, I thought and, he, I thought his swing act actually touched a player. But I may be wrong about that. I may yeah, be misremembering I, it. Yeah, I don't remember exactly. But I think the point the point is is that I think you have someone who it's not a matter. In my opinion, it's not a matter of if; it's a matter of when. And it's, right, it's certainly exactly. a threat and a risk I, to Michigan. And, you know, you can be a great person and just have a bad temper sometimes. I mean, that's just nothing like unusual. That happens all the time. And if you're not taking steps to solve it, you know, it doesn't matter how great a guy. I mean, it's funny. They're very different situations, but you talk about matter of if not when. I long said that about Dan Dockage, that to me, it was blatantly obvious that his, um, career at ESPN, his career, uh, announcing basketball games, being a color guy for basketball games was going to end. And it was going to end badly because he couldn't control himself. And sure enough, that's exactly what's happened. It was just a matter of when does the moment come? That might be the case here, but I guess we'll, I guess we'll find out. Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, let's get into talk about the team last year. Um, let's start with the departing players. Eli Brooks, a fifth-year guard, he averaged 12.8 points a game on 44-39-88 shooting. Tops his team in steals with an assist-to-turnover ratio of 2-to-1. 
he was definitely their best defender. He was uh, a reliable uh, veteran. But I think he probably gave the team a little bit less last year than they probably had hoped for. They probably needed a little bit more from him. Uh, and actually, maybe even... Because I think what he had done in his fourth year was uh, was a big jump. And I think they were expecting a little bit more in last year as well. And he just didn't give that. And that was part of the reason I think they didn't get as far in the Big Ten as people had hoped. Yeah, I, I agree with that. On the other hand, I think that expectation was the problem more than Eli Brooks being the problem. Because if you look at the season he had, it was actually pretty good. Yeah. He was by far their best perimeter defender. He shot the ball well. He was a reliable secondary playmaking option. Um, did a lot of good things. It's just that, you know, if Eli Brooks is your fourth or fifth guy, the way he was the year prior, okay. That's a good, solid role for him to be in. And you're very happy to have him in that role because he's built for that, to be very effective at that spot in your rotation. When he's got to be your number two guy offensively, you're probably asking too much of him because I don't think he's ever, he was ever going to be that guy. And he wasn't, you know, again, the efficiency numbers are fine. It's just Eli Brooks is not a guy, you know, look at someone like a Cassius Winston, for example. And you would say, okay, Cassius Winston, when you need him to, can go get things done himself. He can go make a play himself. He can carry you on his back for a while or through entire games. Eli Brooks was never going to be that guy. He's a guy who can get some things done within a functioning, flowing offense, but you don't just hand him the ball and say, go get us a bucket. That's not who he is. And I think if you're going to be the number two guy in, a, in, a, in an offense, you probably need to have some of that in you. You know, so was that fair to him? No, I think he had a pretty good year and I think they're going to miss him, but he wasn't built for that, for the role that he had to play. He was a complimentary player, right? I think he's exactly akin to like a Gabe, Gabe Brown, like, you know, really good player, good player, right. but exactly, you know, he just was, he just wasn't, he couldn't go to that level that you may have hoped that he yep. could achieve. You feel good about him if he's your fourth or fifth guy, but if he's got to be number one or number two, you're probably in trouble. Next is Devontae Jones, a 6'1 transfer from Coastal Carolina. He averaged 10.3 points a game, led the team in assists with 151. Uh, slightly better than 2-1 to assist turnover ratio. He shot 46, 34, and 79. He had a good season transferring up, but he was, again, he was, he was uh, not quite the point guard that he had needed that they had gotten the year before. Yeah. But, you know, Mike Smith, we've talked about it before here, really – ended up being a great solution for their problem two years ago. And it was surprising to me because all the track record suggested, okay, this is a, a guy who led his team in scoring because he had to, wasn't particularly efficient. I'm talking about when he was at Columbia um, and wasn't, didn't show signs of being a great playmaker. And you wonder how is that kind of guy uh, a, a score first point guard at the Ivy league level going to fit in the big 10. Well, it turns out he completely reinvented himself and was actually a really good solution for that problem. They had Devonte Jones came in um, from coastal Carolina, but with a better rep, he had been in the NBA draft and actually had apparently impressed a lot of people before pulling out, deciding to enter the portal and go to Michigan. 
he was bigger, you know, he was like six, two, six, three. Um, and there was a thought that he had some NBA potential, but it turns out he wasn't able to reinvent himself the way Mike Smith did. Now by season's end, he had kind of found a groove and was playing better, but early on when they were really struggling, he was not good. And, and so that way, you know, if he, if he had another year to play there, um, you know, I would have a different take on it. I would, if he had another year to come back, I would say, okay, he showed some signs in the second half of the season of starting to get it. Maybe he's ready to have a full season of playing reasonably high level basketball, but that's not happening. So um, it's kind of a moot point. I think in the end, they got a little bit of effective basketball out of him down the stretch, but for a lot of the season, he just wasn't what they needed at that position. Yeah, absolutely. Next would be Caleb Houston. He was a 6'7 freshman, McDonald's All-American. He averaged 10.1 points a game, four rebounds a game on 38, 36, and 73 shooting. He was a guy who really struggled early in the season to get a shot down and got it going later in the later in the year. He then decided to leave for the draft, and he ended up getting uh, picked up by Orlando early in the second round. Yeah, and I, and I think he was one of the reasons why there was a lot of hype around Michigan in the preseason because thought was, okay, well, we've lost Franz Wagner and Isaiah livers, but look, we're adding this guy. It's a top 10 recruit and people have these. And I, and I want to say this Michigan state fans a year from now, please remember this. When Xavier Booker shows up on campus, it is not a God given right that a top 10 recruit comes in and dominates as a collegiate freshman. It, in fact, it just doesn't happen easily or always. And Houston eventually figured it out as a shooter. He ended up shooting 36% from three, which reflected a pretty good close to the season because for about half the year, he was God awful. And, and the set, the sad thing is if he wasn't hitting shots, he really didn't help you at all. He was really bad defensively, and that's where Michigan really suffered. The drop-off from what Franz Wagner gave them the year prior to what they got out of this kid was significant, and not just offensively, even more so on the defensive end, in my opinion. So, you know, you got to be careful with this stuff, and too many people fall very easily into that trap of assuming that because a kid is rated highly, that means, well, you could just extrapolate from there and he's automatically going to produce at these levels. It's not that simple. And it wasn't for this guy and it wasn't for Michigan. As you said, he ended up going in the draft. He was picked early in the second round with Orlando. So he's going to get a real shot to prove himself for the NBA. But I, I did not see a surefire NBA player last year. Maybe he'll start to figure it out. But, you know, I don't think it's a given that he's going to last. Sure. Uh, next would be his counterpart, Musa Diabate, 6'10 freshman from another McDonald's All-American. He averaged nine points a game, six rebounds a game, second in the team of blocks with just under one a game. He shot 54, 21, and 62. It's kind of the same story, right? There's big expectations. I think watching them play, he seemed more, re- I guess, ready to end up in the um, to go have an NBA career. He, certainly by with his size helps quite a bit. Seemed to be pretty athletic. He hurt us a little bit one game. I, I think it was the one in Breslin. Uh, he also left the draft, left uh, in the second round to the Clippers. And I, th- I think 
again, I just think he's going to have, a, he has a little bit more of a prospect for the NBA than, than Houston, but probably didn't give as much as everyone expected, right? Just like Houston. Yeah. I mean, to me, he, he kind of at times reminded me of a broke man's um, Jaron Jackson, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. Jaron Jack, but, but remember, Jaron Jackson was a shot blocking machine and was a plus 40% three point shooter as a freshman. So for any problems Jaron had, he actually really produced this guy. There were some similarities in terms of the physical tools, but the production was way lower. Um, I liked him having said all that. I liked him. I thought the thing that I liked about him is he played hard all the time. And not always well, but he always played with a motor. And so you like that, that you can work with that, right? If you've got physical tools and you play hard over time, you're going to figure some things out. I'm kind of surprised. And I, I don't quite understand why the NBA was not more enamored with him than they were. Cause yeah, he got picked, but he got picked in the forties and, and you can't say to me, well, he didn't have a great year in terms of production at Michigan. That's neither here nor there for the draft either. So I, I'm not quite sure what it was that, uh, I never really managed to get my arms wrapped around what the reason was that, that he wasn't seen as a first rounder, because at times I thought he did look like a guy who could be an NBA player. You know, yeah, he's really his shooting. Was it his, three well, that, yeah, was that his, but maybe that's, that's what they were concerned about that maybe. And he did struggle with the three. You know, he seemed to want to believe that he was a stretch four, and he really didn't <laughs> stretch very much because he didn't hit enough <laughs> shots. But I also didn't think his jumper looked horrific. I just think he didn't hit it very often. He certainly, to my eye, he looked like a guy who has the potential to get better. Um, and again, what does one-year production mean? You know, you're if in the NBA draft, it seems to me you're more focused on projectability. Okay, what can this guy be, you know, a couple of years from now in this area of weakness? Can he improve? And I would think that the thought is, yeah, he can get better. I was also surprised that a guy with his size and length wasn't a better shot blocker than he was. So maybe there's something in all of that. But regardless, he's a loss. If Michigan had him back, we'd be having a different conversation about this team, I think. Because I do think if he were back as a sophomore at Michigan, you would see a big jump. I, I do think that. Um, but we're not going to see that. So There you go. Yeah, he definitely would uh, make him put him up above fifth spot here. Next would be Zeb Jackson. Not much to say about him. He's a six-three guard. He didn't play much and eventually uh, decided to transfer and left for VCU. Uh, you know, uh, Interesting situation. Zeb Jackson was a guy Michigan State offered to out of Ohio, out of the Toledo area, and was a guy that a lot of Midwest programs were heavily invested in. Michigan got him early. Um, it was a weird year for point guards at Michigan State. So they, they were interested in Zeb Jackson. They didn't get him. They did get Jalen Terry, and then he decommitted. And they ended up with A.J. Hogard, who seems likely to end up with the best career of the three. Um, Hard to believe it. That's not what you would have predicted either. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Zeb Jackson was a guy who people really liked earlier in his high school career. And then by the time he was a senior, he went and played at a uh, Montverde and really struggled to get minutes there. And that was the first warning sign that 
oh, maybe this guy isn't what he was cracked up to be. And then two years at Michigan, just never, despite the fact that they needed someone at his spot, never found his way to minutes. And yeah, he's going to try and rebuild things at VCU. So we'll see what happens. Brandon Johns is next, the 6'7 senior. He's from East Lansing, I believe. He averaged 3.2 points a game, 2.3 rebounds a game, and played about 13 minutes a game. Shot 36, 29, and 71. And, you know, he was a guy who looked like he had turned the corner the year before, and maybe it's because they expected a little bit more from him and needed a little bit more last year, but he just wasn't able to deliver. And so he's decided to transfer to VCU with his friend Zeb Jackson. Right. Um yeah, it's, you know, the, the Brandon Johns tenure at Michigan, I think, has to be labeled a disappointment. I, there was persistent criticism of Brandon Johns when he was a high school player at East Lansing, and most of it, nothing was ever around the skill set because he was, or the athleticism. Those things were always there, but there was a thought that he really wasn't a tough kid and didn't like to, to mix it up and do dirty work. Despite that, Tom Izzo recruited him and wanted him, didn't get him, ended up at Michigan. And, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting path because his freshman year, it looked to me like he was dead in the water. Like it, it went so badly. And I had heard that he was going to transfer out, but then Beeline left. And so he stuck around and, you know, he had his moments under, under Juwan Howard as a sophomore. And especially as a junior, when they had that NCAA tournament run, Brandon Johns did some really good things. And he seemed to have solved. It looked to me like Howard had gotten to him and, and figured out a way to get him to play and with, with an, a hard hat attitude as a guy who did the dirty work and embraced it. He had moments where he was really effective, but last year they needed him to do that. And he just wasn't up to it. And he saw his role shrink as time went on during last season. And uh, yeah, it wasn't a big surprise that he decided to play his COVID year elsewhere. Cause I think his with other guys coming in, et cetera, I think it just, it wasn't going to be there for him, but a, dis- a disappointment because I really liked his potential. I mean, I remember watching him in high school in AAU and I thought, man, there's a really good player in there. I did not think he was unfairly hyped. Um, I do. I still think he had a great deal of talent. Um, I thought that he actually could have been a wing and could have been a good one. He never really got that chance at Michigan. They pretty much from jump, he ended up, at, he even played some small ball five at times, but primarily yeah. as a four man. And, you know, I, it, who knows, could he have been better? Had he been given an opportunity to play the three somewhere? I don't know, but I always thought he had it in him and um, we never really saw it. So much of life is being in the right circumstances. Absolutely. You know, match your skill sets and that, and that is somewhat of a crapshoot, right? Whether it's absolutely it may not turn out to be, and it's, it's, you feel kind of bad for some of these kids because it may just, for whatever reason, just didn't work out. The other end of it, you know, Isaiah livers was a kid who grew up a Michigan state fan was offered by both schools, ended up picking Michigan. And again, a lot of people said at the time, well, he doesn't really want to play Izzo style basketball. 
He's, he's a little contact shy, doesn't really want to do the, the, the dirty work. But over time at Michigan, especially after the switch to Juwan Howard, Isaiah Livers found those elements in his game and now is in the NBA in part because he can do more than just shoot. So, you know, you never know how that I, I would have said when he made his decision to commit, man, that's the wrong move because you need to go to a place that's going to toughen you up. And Michigan State would do that. I'm not sure John Beeline's Michigan will. And that's not going to be in your best interest. Same reason why I thought Vernon Carey made a huge mistake going to Duke where you knew they would hide him defensively. They wouldn't do anything to force him to get better defending people out on the floor. Whereas at Michigan State, he would have had to have gotten better. Well, I think it's hurt his pro prospects. But you look at Livers and it worked out in the end. Opportunity met, you know, talent, whatever. And it worked. Yeah, certainly an element of chance in the whole thing. Uh, next is a surprising departure is Frankie Collins. He was six one freshman guard, averaging two point eight points a game on forty three seventeen and forty four shooting. Obviously, not a very good shooter, but certainly looked like it, by the end of the season two that he was kind of figuring out the point guard position as a backup. Uh, Absolutely, he decided to leave very late that he was going to go to uh, Arizona State, and mainly because of a player we'll talk about later, a new point guard they brought in a transfer out of Princeton. Absolutely, and. This is one that I, I have trotted out a few times on this podcast already to try to reach some of the Michigan State fan base <laughs> who thinks that using the portal is as simple as going out there, finding a guy that you like, identifying him, recruiting him, landing him, and then everything goes on as if it's a video game. It's not how it works. This one was directly attributable to what Michigan did in the portal. They went out and got this kid Llewellyn from Princeton and almost immediately after, I think it was the same day or maybe the day after yeah, that it was announced that Llewellyn was coming to Michigan. Frankie Collins hit the portal, ended up at Arizona state. Um, now in fairness to Michigan, Frankie Collins, I believe played at four high schools in four years. So this is not new for him, but when you look at it on the surface, his role was growing as his freshman year went on. And if he was returning, we would be talking about, okay, can he take the next steps? He showed some things late in the year. Can he improve his shooting? Can he find more balance offensively? Can he get a bit better defensively? But he showed signs of starting to get it. You know, we'd be having that conversation instead. He just said, ah, sorry, I'm not hanging around for this and left. And I think it's a loss because I think he would have been a, I would have felt better about their point guard situation if he were still in this mix. There's no question about that. Uh, finally, Adrian Nunez, 6'7 wing. He's a recruit uh, near the end of Beeline's tenure. He was uh, a guy who's expected to be a perimeter threat, never really panned out. And he just opted to, Skip his COVID year and, as they say, enter the private sector. <laughs> yeah, well, he's he's also, I would imagine, some of what came into the frame for him is he had a very, very large social media following, from what I understand, on Instagram, and monetized that. So uh, he may not have felt a need to continue with the ruse that he was a college basketball player. <laughs> um, it just never panned out. 
you know, Beeline had a few of these guys. He had a very, very keen sense of identifying talent and identifying it early before a lot of schools would get into the mix. I give him credit for that. But he also missed on a lot of guys, too. And that's what like, kind of like Mark D'Antonio in football, right? Mark D'Antonio had a great knack for finding, you know, under-recruited three stars that would become all Big Ten level players. But you also got to remember, he also missed on some guys who had similar profiles, too. It happens. You're not going to hit on 100%. Nunez was one of Beeline's guys that just never panned out. Well, let's talk about returning players. And, of course, the number one returning player that everyone loves to hate, Hunter Dickinson. 7-1 junior had a good year statistically last year, averaging 18.6 points a game on 8.6 rebounds a game. He also posted one and a half blocks a game, led the team in that category, obviously. He shot 56, 33, and 80 for the season. The three-point shot was a new addition, although I think when he came to Breslin, I think he missed every single one, if I recall. Uh, big yeah. guy, and we've talked about it a ton. You know, guy just can't move real great on defense, but just devastating inside and on the blocks, especially if he gets good position deep. You're just, you're pretty much dead. Yeah, it's, it's challenging to talk about him because you look at some of the production and it's obvious how important he is and how effective a player he is as, as, at the collegiate level. And yet there are manifest, well, there's one big manifest weakness that I don't think he's capable of improving very much. So that really always has me thinking about what does it mean to have this guy on your team and to have him as your best player? It worked really well when he was a freshman. Why did it work? In part, it worked because Michigan had enough good defensive players around him that they didn't pay a price for his defensive deficiencies. You know, they were, they were able to figure that out and to allow him to play and do the things that he does well and not pay a serious price at the other end. Last year, that was not the case. You know, his offensive numbers are fantastic. And, you know, he, he developed in fairness to him. He put work in. He was a non-factor as a jump shooter, as a freshman, as a sophomore, not a great three-point shooter, but a credible threat. And I won't be surprised if he goes up another half a level or so as a junior. I'd be surprised if he ever became like a Luca Garza 40% plus guy from three. But if you told me he ended this year in the mid to high 30s, it wouldn't shock me. And you add that to what he can do whenever he gets the ball in the low blocks. Hey, that's pretty, that's a pretty substantial threat. And unlike somebody like Kofi Coburn, he sees the floor. Well, you can play through him some out of the post. So if, if teams bring doubles, he could punish you at times for doing that lot to like there, but man, he can't guard anybody. You go back to that first game against MSU at Breslin and AJ Hogard and Joey Hauser combined just tortured him, absolutely tortured him. Uh, one of the things I was furious about in the game um, at Chrysler is that I thought there was a huge opportunity for Tyson Walker to just destroy him in pick and roll, to get switched on him 
and he's got no choice but to give a guard room for the shot. And as long as you can hit a decent amount of those 15 to 20 footers, you could make Michigan really pay for having him on the floor. And Tyson just would not pull the trigger. It was, it was maddening to watch. But anyway, um, that is the issue with Hunter Dickinson. How much of a hit do you take defensively for having him on the floor? And you're going to have him on the floor because he does so much as a scorer and as a rebounder. He's so important for them. But that will continue to be the question for as long as he's there because I don't think, again, in fairness to him, I don't think it's about work ethic. I don't think, well, this guy just doesn't try hard enough to improve his body or to figure out how to play. I just don't think he's got the wheels. You know, look at look at Luca Garza. Would you ever say that Luca Garza didn't work his ass off? Of course he did. You saw it every game the guy ever played, and I'm sure that translated to the way he practiced too. But all the work in the world wasn't ever going to make him a capable pick-and-roll defender. I think a lot of the same things about Dickinson. Yeah, you you only have the physical tools that you have. You can enhance right. them. You can, but you know, it's just like the, the old joke. You you can't coach seven one, right? <laughs> you know, you, yeah. So that helps him. Obviously, it gives him advantage. Uh, and uh, you know, I suppose you NBA future. You know, if he gets his three point shooting in the forties, like Garza did, maybe he has a chance. But Ugh. even there, are you going to be sitting on the end of the bench? Are you at like the twelfth, thirteenth in the, in the and, right? I mean, and that's, look at Luka that's Garza. the problem. Yeah, Luka right. Garza. He's a great analogy could barely get a cup of coffee up with the Pistons last year, played a handful of games, mostly spent it in the G league and they've already moved on from him. You know, it's, and that's a guy who is as good as Hunter Dickinson is. He hasn't done what Luca Garza did not yet. So what does that tell you? Um, look, the, the hope that Michigan has to have is that team defense improves this and allows them to cover for him in, in ways that they weren't capable of doing last season. You know, that's the hope. Cause I just don't see individually where he's going to be able to make significant strides there. Yeah. I think he's kind of maxed out as far as what he can do offensively and defensively. And so it's just a complimentary uh, portion of what's around him. That's going to make the biggest yep. difference, both offensively and defensively, probably. Yeah. So next talk about Terrence Williams. He's a 6'7 junior. He averaged 4.7 points a game, 2.4 rebounds a game, shooting 46, 39, and 79. He was brought in as sort of the, the guy who can do anything, play the three and the four, defend everyone. And, uh, you know, I guess he's a guy who's a good piece to bring back, but is he going to be able to play the, the bigger role that you need for this season? It's I, the big question, I suppose. That's the question. Can you get more minutes out of him? in more usage, can he remain an efficient player? He, he took a step up as a freshman. He really struggled shooting the ball. He was much, much better last season. And if he can be a high thirties, low forties guy from three with higher usage, well, you could have something because, you know, he's not, he's not a great athlete. He's not a huge guy at six, six, but he's another guy who plays with a good motor. Um, I think can help you in a lot of ways. I think he's got the potential to get better defensively. We'll see where that goes this year, but um, he's going to play a role. There's no question. He's going to be in the rotation. And over the course of last season, he really supplanted Johns in that, in that spot, you know, uh, his first big off the bench. Can he take the next step up? That's the open question. 
Right, next we'll talk about Kobe Bufkin. 6'4 sophomore guard, he averaged three points a game on 38, 22, and 77 shooting. I mean, the hope, obviously, with him is that he was going to be a much better shooter than he ended up being outside. He also had trouble defensively, which is, you know, the problem with the team in general. And I think this is a guy who I think you have reasonable expectation that he's going to be quite a bit better shooting and defensively. But if he doesn't, then I think, you know, Michigan's going to have a lot more problems than, than they want. He, ha- he has to be. If they're, if they're going to be a really good team, Kobe Bufkin, I, I do not see an equation where that can happen. And Kobe Bufkin's not a lot better. He, I, I like him as a player. I liked him in high school. I've talked about this many times. He was for a while. He was on the same AAU team as Pierre Brooks and Jaden Akins. And I, I thought he was a very, very good prospect. He's, he reminded me a little bit. I would say he was almost sort of a poor man's Gary Harris in some ways to me in that like Gary wasn't really a point guard, but you also weren't uncomfortable with the ball in his hands. Some maybe not quite the same level of athlete as Gary, but close, very good athlete. And yet the ability to also step away from the basket and shoot effectively. Well, the shooting didn't translate last year. And one big difference between those two guys is Gary Harris was a high level defender from day one. Kobe Bufkin could guard a shadow last year. And that surprised me. <laughs> It really did. Now, now you also have to keep in mind, he missed a lot of his senior year in high school due to injury. So, you know, there, there may have been something there too. The bits and pieces I've seen around their team this off season is that they think he is well on his way to making those strides. He has to be a good player this year for them. I think they need him and are counting on him to be a starter and to be effective and take that sophomore year jump. We'll see how that happens um but it's a big it's a big question mark they need him to be a lot better next to be jace howard he's a 6'7 junior obviously the son of the head coach he played 14 games and so expectations he's going to play a bigger role than he did last season I, I don't know i mean what do you how important is he to the this next upcoming season not hugely but the reason i've got him in there you know he was a walk-on that shouldn't be taken as a total slight. He could be playing D1 on scholarship elsewhere. It's just he wanted to play for his dad. He's not quite the level of his younger brother, who we'll talk about, was a much better prospect. He's not quite a guy that's an obvious Big Ten scholarship player, but he's got good enough size and athletic ability that I could see him carving out a role as an occasional you know, defensive pinch hitter type. That's sort of where I see him slotting in right now. So I, I don't know how big a role it will be, but I, I, I kind of would be a little bit surprised if he doesn't play at least a few minutes a game. Sure. And I'm, that's not a nep, that's not a nepotism charge. I think he actually might be worthy of that, especially if he could guard people the way I think he can. Right. This is not Stephen Izzo going out and playing five minutes, right? Right. 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 <laughs> Yeah. Uh, next would be uh, Isaiah Barnes, six seven Fred, Richard freshman from Chicago, uh, an athlete, and he's a guy who I, they're expecting some stuff from, obviously, this year as well. Yeah. I, you know, interesting player because he sat out. Um, they really like him as an athlete, and they think he can be helpful defensively right away because he's got good size and strength on the wing and some athletic ability, too. Uh, the offensive game, from what I've heard, is going to take a while longer 
to get dialed in. Like he's not necessarily a reliable shooter, not really an off the dribble threat, uh, kind of more of a garbage man transition guy at this point. But, um, you know, having sat out last year, it remains to be seen how ready he is to contribute. He was definitely playing a role, a significant role. You know, they took a trip to Greece uh, for three games this summer, and he his name was showing up among the leading scorers at times. So it seems like he might be poised to claim a rotation spot and, and he could be part of what might help them improve on the defensive end. If he is ready to go at that end, I think offensively probably a stretch to expect a lot, but that might not matter. There still might be a role for him to play, even if he's not a big scoring producer, you know? Right. Right. And finally, Will Cheddar, he's a 6'8 redshirt freshman. Uh, he's out of Minnesota, 240, and he's a four-man. Four I guess they're going to hope to see if they can get some stuff out of him this year. And obviously another question mark because somebody didn't see the court last season. Yeah, you know, the, the word on him is skilled guy, can shoot the ball, but there are question marks about how he translates athletically to this level. And and especially anytime you talk about a post player, how well can he defend? How versatile is he? Can he handle switching? You know, those types of things. And I have not gotten any sense that there are obvious positives here. Like there's no sense that, Hey, we found something. We stole one here because he was not a highly regarded recruit. Um, you know, there could be a role available for somebody who could pitch in with 10, 12 minutes a night at the four and the five. I just don't know if he's going to be the guy to take it. Sure. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of questions in this team, like all the teams that seem we've, we talked about so far coming to right. the 10. Uh, talk about new, some newcomers now. The one we alluded to earlier is Jalen Llewellyn, the 6'2 point guard transfer. I, I say point guard, grad transfer from Princeton. He averaged 15.7 points a game on 45, 39, and 70 shooting uh, with 2.5 assists per game to, to 1.8 turnovers a game. So they expect him to shoot well and to run the offense. And I think with the expectation initially that Frankie Collins would be maybe the main point guard and they sort of share duties. But obviously Frankie Collins saw some writing in the wall that maybe <laughs> that we didn't. He's going to be the guy. I mean, that seems pretty obvious to me. There aren't a lot of others. One other option is a freshman who's not seen necessarily as an instant impact guy. So it's going to be him. And, you know, there's a, a guy who's a friend of the podcast, uh, a guy I know whose son plays in the Ivy League. He plays for Yale. So I asked him after this came through because I looked at the numbers. And I read a bit about Llewellyn and I thought they're talking about this guy as a point guard. And I asked him, hey, what's what did you see? Because he obviously watches a lot of Ivy ball now. Sure. And he said, um, he said, no, (laughs) (laughs) he's not a point guard. He said he could shoot, you know, and he was an effective scorer for Princeton, but he's not really a point guard. So I, I this one did not make any sense to me, especially when it cost them Frankie Collins, who at least showed some potential to be a, a real floor leader, you know, um, we'll see. I mean, I listened in prepping for this. I listened to an interview with Phil Martelli that happened in the last few days. And, you know, what he talked about when the Wellens name came up is he said, 
hey, people are going to really love his shot making. Okay, well, that's important. And, you know, and again, 39% shooting from three in the Ivy doesn't necessarily translate to the Big Ten, but they obviously feel like in his case it will, and it could. That Michigan needs shooting too, so that's not nothing. But, man, I just, I see another real serious question mark when it comes to running the offense. And, you know, for the second year running, really the third year running, it's just they they ended up getting it answered possibly the first year. Um, but yet again, we've got Michigan third year in a row rolling with a grad transfer point guard. And in this case, a guy who is the least obvious fit at that position of the three they brought in. So we'll see. It is certainly an interesting strategy. I mean, I guess the one thing you would say to – to for uh, Jalen Howard, you know, Jawan Howard, maybe, maybe he knew Collins was leaving. And so this is sort of a reply to, I mean, I don't think that's, I don't, that's I don't not know. my sense. That's but, but not that's, my but, sense. You know, I don't, but again, you're not picking, you're not pulling in a point guard, or at least a guy who's playing the point uh, where he was before. So uh, yeah, as you said, we'll see what happens. Uh, next yeah. newcomer, much ballyhooed Joey Baker, six, seven grad transfer from Duke. <laughs> He averaged four and a half points a game in 12 minutes a game, shot 43, 41, and 78. Uh, it's one that, I mean, I feel like the last couple of weeks, everyone's, all the Michigan fans have been talking big about him because he's a highly uh, regarded recruit. But he certainly didn't do a ton for Duke. And so, I mean, I guess maybe they think they're going to get more out of him that Duke wasn't able to exploit. Well, look, he he struggled to really break through into a major role at Duke. His last couple of years, he managed to become like a, you know, 10, 11, 12 minute a night guy, but never really became a major impact player. But that happens at Duke because they'll land a recruiting class of, you know, five or six guys. And inevitably a couple of them don't play as much as you might've thought they, they might have. And they end up getting passed by in successive recruiting classes. They just recruit over you. Um, Joey Baker does shoot the ball well. I mean, he put up good numbers last year. Uh, he's done that before in his career. But there are a couple of issues here. One is he's never been known as a, as a good or effective or even average defender on the wing. But the second thing, which I think is bigger, is he had hip surgery this offseason. And so anytime you're talking about a guy who isn't a gifted athlete to begin with, um, hasn't been known as a particularly good defensive player to begin with, and now they're coming off hip surgery, you got to wonder. And and we're not going to know until they hit the floor and start playing. How much has, if anything, has he lost in terms of his mobility? And how does that affect what he can, what Michigan could get out of him? But I, look, I get it. It's a, it's probably a worthwhile gamble to take him and hope that those things pan out effectively and you get the benefit of what he can do as a jump shooter. But I, I, I would not yet have great expectations about how much he's going to give them. Yeah, I saw what happened to Jordan Bohannon, who couldn't guard anyone, and then he had oh, yeah. Spike, he really couldn't Spike guard Albrecht. anyone. Spike yeah. Albrecht. I mean... He had that hip surgery after he left Michigan, transferred to Purdue, and he just was done. It's a really, really hard injury to get past, as I've observed. So next we'll go to Doug McDaniel, a 5'10 freshman guard from D.C. 
quick uh, and known to be efficient jump shooter, but he's obviously small, and so that's going to be a, a challenge for him in the Big Ten. He was more highly regarded early, and then his ranking slipped. Still a top 100 guy, but his ranking started to slip a bit as his last AAU season went along. You know, the word on him is he's a decent shooter, not a great one, but not a bad one, and very quick. But um, the criticisms I've seen are that he needs a lot of refinement in his judgment as a playmaker and that he's going to struggle finishing at the rim against bigger players, D1, because he's not you know, hes not a 5'11 guy who's an explosive athlete. Right. Um, so I, I, let's put it this way. They recruited him. They had Frankie Collins already on board. They still felt compelled to go out and get Llewellyn. <laughs> right. So yeah. that probably tells you that they're not expecting that Doug McDaniel is going to come in and win the job and be a 30 minute a night guy as a freshman. Right. I think he's going to play a role and it'll probably look a lot like the one Frankie Collins played last year. I don't know how effective he'll be, but that that's what I would expect. Sure. And then we'll, uh, we previously mentioned Jet Howard. He's six, eight freshman, another son of Jawan Howard the expectations. He plays on the wing or at the four and someone who's probably going to get a little bit uh, more play than his older brother, initially especially i'd say a lot more i think there's probably a pretty good chance he'll start um jet howard is a top 50 recruit so legitimate talent uh they think he's a shot maker so he can do some things offensively right away i would actually think he could fit into the same kind of role that caleb houston played last year but there may be an added benefit that i think jet howard's probably going to be better defensively so he's another guy who I mentioned Isaiah Barnes. He's another guy who could, I could see a path to where he is a big part of helping them get better defensively as a team. Uh, but they have big expectations. I don't think they're necessarily, you know, he's going to come in and average 20 and eight and, you know, be first team all big 10, but they think he's going to be really good right away. Do you think the fact that he's uh, his father's, you know, son, do you think there's a chance that he sticks around a little bit longer than uh, at least more likely to stick around than someone to bolt quickly for the pro ranks? I mean, outside he's a top 10 pick, obviously that's a different discussion, but yeah, possibly. I mean, I think where maybe it matters if is if it's a borderline decision, maybe then it matters. Uh, but that would, that would probably be the one kind of case where I could see it coming into play. So next would be Terrace Reed. He's a 6'10", 260-pound freshman from St. Louis. And he's uh, got some freakish wingspan of 7'4". So obviously expectation he's going to bring a little bit more defensive presence maybe behind Dickinson. Yeah, he's a guy that Michigan State recruited um, pretty hard and thought they had a great chance at early. And then it shifted at some point, became a Michigan-Ohio State thing, and he ended up going to Michigan. In retrospect maybe worked out for the best because Michigan state ends up getting Jackson Kohler and not that these <laughs> yeah. things mean the world, but Jackson Kohler absolutely owned Terrace Reed in a postseason all-star game. <laughs> um, so we'll see how they, it'll be interesting to watch their careers, but you know, Terrace Reed is just a big kid. He's an old school kind of big man back to the basket. Um, they like, they think he has some ball handling skills and maybe some ability to shoot a little bit from range, but 
I, I think he's, he's mostly going to be a guy you want around the rim. Um, the question marks with him have to do with uh, conditioning and with defense. Um, I think in time, I would expect him to be probably a, a really good low post player. If he hangs around, you know, three, four years um, for this year, he should be a pretty good uh, backup to Dickinson. Cause I would assume Michigan's going to want to get, you know, 30, 31, 32 minutes a night from Dickinson. So if Reed only has to play like eight, 10 minutes a night as his right, caddy, yeah. that's, that's probably a pretty good scenario. Exactly. Uh, next would be Greg Glenn, a six, seven freshman forward from Florida, also seen as a three or four uh, and similar to Williams before someone who I guess is going to jack of all trades sort of. That's my expectation. You know, uh, he's a winner. He led his team to a state title in Florida. Um, but not a hyped guy, not quite a top, he's outside the top 100 as a recruit. Um, not a guy who's expected to be a big time contributor early on, but I guess we'll see with a lot of these guys that are younger, you know, talk about him and Barnes and Cheddar and all, all these guys, it's probably going to come down to who grasps things best early. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. And then finally, Yusuf Kayat, he's a six, nine, 200 pound forward from Lebanon late edition this summer, uh, but someone that I think can come in right away and if not start, at least be play impactful role on the team. Yeah. He's very much a wild card edition. They got him during the summer. He played it in a professional league in France, but maintained his collegiate eligibility because he wasn't being paid the exact same scenario Michigan had with Franz Wagner. Um, and I think even his older brother, Boris Wagner, I think was the same deal. Um, so, the positive side of this is this kid has already got some national team experience for Lebanon and he's played against men in France uh, and done some good things, but there's a lot that's unknown here. They seem to really believe that in the long run, he could give them some similar things to what they got from the younger Wagner as a longer wing who can really defend well can maybe give you some um, some three-point shooting uh, and maybe also figure out other ways to score. I don't, I don't get the sense that the belief is this guy is quite as developed as Wagner was at the same point. And, you know, let's remember, Wagner struggled a lot offensively, in particular, as a freshman. So it's not like he was a star right away. It took him some time to find himself if that's the model here and this guy maybe isn't quite as advanced, well, how much can you reasonably expect? I, I would figure he's going to be in their rotation because I don't know why they'd add him late if they didn't think they needed what he had to give. But very much a wild card in my mind as to how good he can be. If he's really good out of the shoot, boy, that, that, could, that could help Michigan because you put that together with what you expect the younger Howard to be as a freshman, Terrence Williams, obviously you have Dickinson, you figure Reed can help. Um, you know, they've all of a sudden, you've got a lot of guys at the three, four and five, you know, yeah, so that would be a, a big positive. It's almost like a jumbled up. There's almost too much, too much there. Maybe, three and five, but you've got to figure realistically, not all these guys are going to pan out. So you'd rather have a lot of potential shots on goal, right? It certainly feels like when you look at this team, when you look at the overall outlook, 
that this team has a lot of potential in the three is five. I think that's obviously we know they're going to be very dangerous to the five offensively with Dickinson, the threes and four. So I guess really the, the big question is what you expected from the start is that they're going to, what are they, their guard play going to be like? You're bringing in someone who's not a true point guard to take over your point guard responsibilities. How are they going to be? I mean, I feel like that's going to be the rate limiting step for this team. And that's assuming that the, they're okay. The three and the four in addition to Dickinson. Right. Um, I think, look, I, I think that, uh, point guard is it's the most important position really at any level of basketball but i think in college it seems to almost be even more so at times i just think it's really hard to win big if you don't have that position solved now you could win some without it you know you look at michigan state two years ago never really got it solved still made the ncaa tournament barely um so you can do that Michigan last year never really fully solved it, but you know, got to the tournament, got to the Sweet 16. Um, but I don't think on balance you look at last year's Michigan team and say, well, they they got by without it. They really did. 19 and 15 is 19 and 15. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, it's to me, it's such a huge question with this team that I don't see how you can really pick them any higher than this. And there will be people who probably do because that's just the way it goes, but it, it shouldn't be because that's a, to have a question mark at any one position. That's the one you least can afford to have. Um, and they've got it. Now, maybe Llewellyn is a revelation and he finds his game as a playmaker or Doug McDaniel surprises people and is really good right away. But those are, very, very legitimate uh, things to question as to the likelihood of them coming to pass. And if they don't solve it, if it remains an issue all year, I think that puts a cap on what Michigan can be. So to me, it, the questions are that. And then the secondary question is, can they be better defensively? And the good news is you've got some guys who at least look the part athletically the bad news is they're all really, really young. It's not like you added, you know, you've got some guys who have been in your system and have come through two or three years and now are ready to bust out or that you went out and added guys from the portal who have experience and are really good defensively. You're counting on freshmen. The three guys that I look at that I think could be difference makers there would be uh, Jet Howard, Isaiah Barnes and, uh, and Kayat. Well, there's two freshmen and a redshirt freshman. <laughs> yeah. That's not an ideal position to be in. You know, I can't rule out that they improve significantly, but it's going to be on the backs of some inexperienced players if they do. Um, those so guys playing your three and four, right? I mean, that's, yeah, that's those people are protecting Dickinson who we already know who yep. he is and what he is. Yeah. So there's, you know, and then on the other side of the equation, look, they have a guy in Hunter Dickinson who offensively is as close to being unstoppable if he gets the ball in his spots as anybody out there. So there, there are positive things too with this team, no question. But I did, to me, this felt like the, the logical landing spot. But if they answer some of these questions positively, they could go higher and they could also go lower. Right. Yeah. You they, can definitely there's, there's see the team. You room have for fifth. that. 
You could definitely yeah. see them even as low as nine, right? I mean, aside from the the bottom of the barrel, yes, sure. they could easily be surpassed by Iowa and Wisconsin and Purdue sure. and Rutgers, right? I mean, it doesn't. It's not a big stretch. Yeah, that, not at all. If the point guard thing really doesn't work out, they're in trouble. Absolutely. I wonder when we'd know that. Like, you know, it seems like they sometimes get off to a rough start, like last year they did, and, and but. I, I guess I don't know. I guess we'll have to see how they do in like the holiday tournament. Here, here's what I would say about that. Um, if the Big Ten is what we think it is this year, I think it's going to be really difficult to make a call on a team early. Yeah. Because you're not, you know what I mean? You're not going to have, oh God, I've got, you know, they're off to a three and five start in the league and they've got, you know, five games against top 10 teams left. It's probably not going to be the scenario. So even if you get off to a slow start, there probably is time for you to figure it out. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. And you'd expect with the freshman to end this uh, transfer point guard, you know, maybe it takes, it might take some time to figure things out. You just hope you're not, if you're Michigan, you're not in such a big hole at that point that you've got to right. really claw that you yourself bury out. yourself. Yeah, yep. right, exactly. And they, they came, look, they flirted with that last year. I mean, they were right on the border of being out of it. And things broke the right way and they figured it out well enough. But yeah, there's there's the danger of that for sure. And finally, I guess you know, my question is about Jawan Howard. We talked about his, you know, anger issues and whatnot. But I as a coach, how do you feel like how do you feel? He's done because I feel like he's done pretty well. He's different than Beeline as far, uh, but I think he's a pretty good X's and O's guy. I think he seems to maximize some players oftentimes. I, and he's recruiting. He seems to be doing pretty well too. I, I think Michigan fans are probably pretty happy with him. What's your impression? Yeah. You know, look, the, it's interesting because two of his three seasons, he's gotten off to terrible starts. It's been lost to time. But they got off, I, I, I'm actually a little bit off on that. They got off to a fantastic start his first year. They won yes. uh, Atlantis. Yeah, they were but then, the lights out that season. And then right, but then off. hit the skids hard at the start of Big Ten play. And that was another year where there was a certain point in time where you looked at it and said, I don't think they're going to make the tournament. And then they rallied enough by the end of the year that they would have been in the tournament, although they would not have been seated highly. Um, then the, the COVID year happens and they really put it together, win the big 10, go on a run to what, to the elite eight. Right. And yeah. then, um, and so everybody's high hosannas. Jawan Howard is, you know, the next John Wooden. And then last year happens where, you know, a terrible start. They rally enough to get in and then win a couple games in the tournament. So it makes everybody feel a little better. But look, he's clearly not a bad coach. And the, the category he falls into, X great players going back to their alma mater, that there's not a lot of success stories in recent years with that dynamic. So by that standard, which, you know, by the way, watch out people in Bloomington, Indiana, because uh, you've got that <laughs> going on right now. But but he's clearly not a Patrick Ewing. He's not a Clyde Drexler, or Chris Mullen. He's not that he's done more, much more than that. 
So he's at the very least a solid coach. There's certain things about the way he approaches it that I like. I mean, he's got much more of a willingness to utilize big men than John Beeline had, clearly. Um, he puts more of an emphasis on rebounding, um, on defense. Those are all things that I, I appreciate as a basketball fan. I don't know if I believe that Michigan has a clear-cut identity offensively that I can really pinpoint. You know, John Beeline definitely had that. Michigan state has that we know, you know, look, they want to run. Um, they're going to be point guard dependent. They need a point guard who can handle things to be really, really good. Uh, I don't know that we have a clear cut answer other than we know that Michigan is going to utilize the big man that we know. Um, but beyond that, I don't know that I believe that there's a, a real offense. You know, if people talk about NBA offense. I don't know what the hell that's supposed to mean. Um, but, uh, you know, he's done, he's done a good job. Um, the recruiting has been interesting, you know, at times it's looked like his class before last season had those two top 10 guys and everybody was, you know, doing somersaults that didn't pan out so well. Uh, this year's incoming freshman group is not quite as highly rated, but there are some good players. His son is a very good player. Terrace Reed is a very good player. We'll see about the Lebanese kid. And then um, uh, Doug McDaniel is at least a top 100 guy. So that looks pretty good on paper. Interestingly, he doesn't have any recruits signed yet for 2023. They've missed on a lot of guys. And they're in contention for a lot of guys still. But right now, it does not look like 23 is going to be a bang-up year. That may change. You know, and there's always the portal, obviously, which he's shown a willingness to use. So who knows what their team is going to look like next season. But yeah, overall, I think if you're a Michigan fan, you should feel pretty good about Juwan Howard. I, yeah, I don't know that he's too. done anything to make me believe that uh, he's going to elevate their program beyond where it's been in recent years under Beeline. I don't see signs of that. Uh, but we'll see. And, and I guess you got to give him credit for the two chances he's had in March. I mean, what's his record? I guess it's five and two in the tournament good. in two tries. Yeah, that's a positive. So he clearly knows how to get the job done there, but you know, uh, not that I would put this expectation on him, but the longer you go without getting to a final four, you know, the more pressure that becomes to do that. And, th and then there's always this, there's always the specter that hangs over him and how long he's going to stay at the college game because in the college game, rather, because he was seen as a guy who was on a path to becoming an NBA head coach before he took this job. So I think, I think most people believe he'll coach his sons. Clearly that's happening. How long does that last? Is his son a one and done? Does he hang around two or three years? That might determine it, but it'll be interesting to see what happens with him in that regard too. Is he a guy who ends up a lifer or does he decide that he wants to try coaching at the professional level? Um, remains to be seen. I don't think he's done anything. I don't think he's done anything to take to hurt himself in that regard, you know, no, um, he's, I would think he's the not NBA an LB, is he's still not an amateur, right? 
Yeah. What's he's, that? He's he's not he's not an Amaker or an Ellerby, right? He's a no, no, God, no, better. no. And I mean, yeah, he's, so. he's not done anything that I would think would reduce the way that NBA franchises look at him as a potential coach. He's done enough, right, to keep himself in that in that conversation should the opportunity arise that he likes. Certainly, my expectation would be that he is not a lifer because of the fact that he came from NBA ranks and that he played in the NBA for a long time. I, I just feel like it's much more likely that he'd go. You just obviously never know the situation. Maybe they won't want him. I mean, maybe things kind of fall off here a while, or really just you. It's again, the future is impossible to predict. If it was easy, then we'll right. all do it. All right, so I guess that'll wrap it up for Michigan. We'll see you in Hate Week, I guess. January seventh will be the, the <laughs> first matchup. <laughs> in uh, East Lansing. I look forward to that game. Uh, I'd like to remind you, if you've not yet subscribed to the show, please make sure you do that in your favorite podcast player. Also, check out our website. You can We have a Spartan community there on a forum, a bulletin board that's going to get more and more active as time goes on. You can find all that at tffinots.com. We look forward to seeing you there. And until next time, the final four is not on the schedule. Go Green. <laughs> At Granger, we're for the ones who pay attention to every little detail. The ones who fuss, tinker, and sweat the small stuff. Because you know the tiniest thing can make the biggest difference when it comes to keeping business moving. We get it. We're the same way. Offering access to product experts to help you quickly and easily find what you need. So whatever your industry, you know you're always getting professional-grade products. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.